0: Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 6. Last week we were here in Matthew chapter 6 and we looked in in verses 5 through 8 and saw here in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us how not, to pray, how we are not to come before the Lord in prayer. And today as we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 6, we begin where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And if we were going to learn about prayer, then Jesus is the teacher we want. He understood and He practiced the importance of prayer. The Gospels record some 28 times when Jesus prayed. And Jesus in His teaching talks about prayer around 40 times. Prayer was a priority with our Lord Jesus. The disciples saw the priority that Jesus put on prayer I'm sure they as well saw not only the priority, but the efficacy of his prayer. And I'm sure that's what prompted them over in Luke chapter 11 to ask Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And it's in that passage in Luke chapter 11, and also here in our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 6, where we find what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. Where Jesus instructs us, He teaches us how to pray. It's one of the most well-known and one of the most well-loved passages of Scripture. One which we, as we talked about last week, which often has become ritual. It has become repetition and sometimes mindless repetition among many believers. And we want to get past that. But sometimes in evangelical churches, in an effort not to move into mindless repetition, we move into simply ignorance and abstaining. And I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of folks here this morning who, if you know, you found yourself on uh, Jeopardy or something and had to quote the Lord's Prayer, you'd have you know little birds sounding or crickets. And so uh, we want to, in the next few weeks, we want to just refresh us with the Lord's Prayer. Not mindless repetition, but learning. So let's say it together. For those of you who don't know it, we've got it on the screen. For those of you who do know it, we have it on the screen because we're going to, there's a few different words. So forces all of us to not mindless repetition, but let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's beautiful in its poetic flow. It is brilliant in its brevity. It is concise, in English, just roughly 66 words. It's easily memorized. Years ago, someone noted in contrast to that, the Gettysburg Address has 266 words. The Ten Commandments, 297 words. The Declaration of Independence has 300 words and a government order that was setting the price of cabbage had 26,911 words. Jesus has taught us how to pray in these few words, brilliant in its brevity, but it's far from simple. It is a treasure trove loaded with truth, and it's going to take us several weeks here to unpack it. This morning, we're just going to concentrate on the very first phrase really of this prayer. Verse 9 of chapter Matthew. Some of us learned this prayer back when we were we were little kids, so young that we really didn't even understand all the words. Many of us have carried that on, still not understanding what it says, into our adulthood. But I was reminded of the second grade class, the Sunday school. They were studying the Lord's Prayer and so the teacher read through the uh, Lord's Prayer a couple of times. Forum and then she asked the questions she said, To whom do we pray, and one kid, oh, 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 I know, I know we pray to God, and his name is art, our father art in heaven, another kid, no no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, His name isn't art, it's Howard, our Father who art in heaven, Howard be thy name, you know and uh, the teacher, you know, is trying to get, grab control. He says, no, 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 you know, it's, it's teaching us how to pray, but it's it's saying we're praying to our Father. His name isn't Art. It's not Howard. Our Father is in is in heaven. The other kid, no, 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 I, I get it. It's, he says, it's a question. He says, our Father who art in heaven, how would you know my name? <laughs> See, there's a lot that kids don't understand, but there's a lot as well for us as adults if we don't look carefully that we miss and we don't understand in this as well. Hopefully by the time we're done in the next few weeks, we'll not only grasp what Jesus is saying, but it will change the way we pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Three parts to this short little verse. There's the call to prayer and there's the address of our prayer and there's the first of the petitions of this prayer. The call to prayer. Jesus says, pray then like this. Or as the New International Version puts it, this then is how you should pray. We notice that Jesus does not say, pray this prayer. Rather, He says, pray like this. This isn't a prescribed prayer where Jesus is saying, okay guys, here's the words, put it to memory, and this is the prayer you pray, these exact words when you pray. It's not a prescribed prayer, but a pattern for prayer. It is an outline to help us pray, but it's not the exact prayer that He calls for us to pray. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of the 19th century, wonderfully described the difference between those two concepts this way. He said, I have seen an architect form the model of a building that he intends to erect out of plaster or wood. But I have never had an idea that that model was intended for me to live in. This prayer of Christ is a chart, as it were. But I cannot cross the sea on a chart. It is a map. But a man does not be, is not a traveler because he traces his fingers across a map. See, this prayer is like a map. It's like a chart. It's like a model of a building. But it's not the thing itself. It's not the same as the building. It's not the same as the journey. Jesus calls us to prayer, but He doesn't say, this is the prayer for you to pray day and night. This is simply an example of what goes into a prayer. And so he begins with telling us the address of our prayer. To whom, as the Sunday school teacher asked, to whom are we praying? And it says, our Father. Three key words to note, really, in this, our Father in heaven. Three key words. The first is simply this, our, our Father. And we see in this one little word, our, we see the corporate nature of our prayer. If you read through the prayer, as we just did a moment ago, I don't know if you noticed, but there are no singular personal pronouns in the Lord's Prayer. There's not an I, there's not a me, there's not a mine. It's all our, ours. We are saved personally. We are saved individually. Meaning that our salvation is a matter of individually coming to God and placing our faith in His salvation, Jesus Christ. Placing our faith in God, our faith in Christ. That is how we are saved. That is an individual thing that we must do. I cannot, by my faith, save you nor can you by your faith save me. We can't save our children by bringing them to church and raising them up. They must place their faith in Jesus Christ. That is a personal thing. And while salvation is personal and individual, we are not saved to be individualistic. What we discover when we come to the Scripture is that from the moment of salvation, the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, baptizes, He places us into the body of Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, 1 Corinthians 12 says. Because of that, immediately when we place our faith in Jesus, we are part of this this body of Christ, universal, and we are interdependent and connected to one another. Just as the parts in our body can't survive individually, a finger cannot survive by itself, the eye can't survive by itself, nor the ear, the body cannot survive Without the other parts of the body, it does not function well without the other parts of the body. The Scripture says that when we are saved, we're placed into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12. We come to the book of Ephesians and we find there, Ephesians chapter 2, that now that we have been by God's grace called and and rescued by His grace, we find Ephesians chapter 2, it says that God is building us, Into a living temple. We are the blocks, the individual blocks, the stones, each one of us. And he's putting us into this body that he says he's building into a living tabernacle, a living temple in which the Spirit of Christ dwells. We go over to Ephesians chapter 5 to Revelation chapter 19. We discover that not only are we part of the body of Christ part of a building of a living temple but we find that we are the bride of Christ Revelation 19 we find the bride of Christ but the bride of Christ is not us individually it is us corporately and what we discover in other words is that why our salvation we are saved individually by faith in Christ we are together corporately God is saving us corporately in this wonderful work that he is doing building a living temple a body a bride and so we need to we need to understand that while as Americans we are by nature individualistic that's kind of the way it's built into us we need to understand that biblically as a believer it's not about me. Our life is about Christ and it is about his body, the church. It is not about me. And it's significant that when we come here to that where Jesus is teaching us how to pray, the focus is not on us individually. It's not on me. It's not on I. It is on us corporately. Our ours. We certainly need to pray privately. We need to pray personally. We also need to pray corporately. And we need to be faithful to pray for one another collectively, for our brothers and sisters locally, our brothers and sisters around the world, because we are all in this together. As I said, Ephesians, where in chapter 2, it It describes us as as the blocks that each one of us that that God is building together into this living temple. The whole rest of the book is about how we are to live together in unity as believers in the church and in our homes. And we get to the end of the book and the last thing in the book, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, Always keep praying for all the saints. And so this prayer brings that into focus our father the second key word here is that word father father which brings to mind the concept here is the theological word the imminence of god Eminence just simply means the nearness the closeness of god god is not a force a power god is a person And He is not a person who is distant or disinterested in us. He's not distant from us. He is Father. God is imminent and we have a relationship with Him through Christ. He is not just a Father. He is not the Father. He is our Father. So it's actually a radical concept in Jesus' day. In the Old Testament, God had revealed Himself to the people of Israel, to His people as Father. Jeremiah chapter 31, that He is a Father to Israel. It was not a brand new concept, but it was a new emphasis because it was a rare mention in the Old Testament. And the Jews never prayed to God as Father. But when Jesus comes on the scene, He changes that. And he teaches us to pray to God as our Father. He constantly refers to God as Father and our Father. In this chapter alone, chapter 6, in these first 18 verses, Jesus speaks of God as Father 10 times. The apostles, they grabbed that and they latched onto it. They loved it. And we find that over 250 times in the New Testament, God is referred to as our Father. They grabbed onto it because it was a, it was a marvelous, a wonderful truth that uh, we should embrace and love. The Apostle John in his letter says this. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. It's a good translation, but I actually love the King James here better. Often the King James is harder to understand, but this just says, see what kind of love. And we kind of, yeah, the King James begins with this. Behold! What manner of love. Is there because it's, this is mind-blowing? It's spectacular. This ought, to, this ought to grip us. What kind of love is this that God knows us and calls us His children? As the little kid in Sunday school said, God, how would you know my So David says in Psalm 8, when he considers the universe, all that God has made, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is a staggeringly wonderful truth. The imminence of God, He is near and He is in relationship to us as our Father. Because God loves us as Father, we can know that He cares about us. He knows what is best for us. He provides what we need. Because He is Father, there's not only relationship, there is accessibility. Last week, I spent over an hour on the phone trying to get through to a person on the other end in customer service. You guys had that experience? Isn't that frustrating? As I was trying to figure out what to do during that hour, among the things I thought was, I wonder what it would be like to try to call the President of the United States. I thought about doing that on a different phone and just seeing who I could get first. I have, imagine that if you try to call the President, never have, but I imagine if you did, that it wouldn't be an hour-long process. It would be, you know, maybe a day process being on hold, and if you could ever get through to anybody and make it through whatever the menus are they've got in their switchboard, if you could ever get through to anybody, I imagine it would be a secretary of a secretary of a secretary, maybe of a cabinet member. Right? Maybe if some of you have tried calling the White House, you can tell me how that goes. But I imagine it's also a very different experience if the President's son calls the White House. I have a feeling, get through directly to the president. That's what Jesus is saying here. That as we approach God through Christ, we come as God's children and we have confidence that He takes our call. He hears. He responds to His children. Really, the question this raises is, are you God's child? We talked about that last week. I have to remind us again, the Scripture is clear that not everyone is God's child. The only ones who are children of God are those, as John 1.12 says, those who have received Him, that's Jesus, who believe on His name. He's given them a the right to be children of God. And I would be remiss... As one who is opening the Word of God, one who is speaking to you this morning, not to ask the question, have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Are you a child of God? If not, God urges you and calls you today to put your trust in Him. Three key words our. Secondly, Father. Third key word, actually, it's a phrase for those of you who are technical. In heaven. This speaks to the transcendence of God. The eminence of God, that's the word that means His nearness to us. The transcendence of God actually means the opposite. His separateness from us. His apartness from us. His aboveness above us. God is above us. He is removed from us. You want, it speaks of how far away He is. He is God and we are not. It's like, Pastor, that's kind of odd that you're, you're speaking in contradictory terms. God is transcendent and God is, at the same time, He is imminent. And yet the Bible tells us that both are true. God is near, but God is also apart from us. He is above us. What this is reminding us is of God's glory as Father. God is Father. He is, there is imminence, there is nearness with Him as Father, but He is over all, and we are small. He is our Father, but He is not Daddy-o. He is not Pops. He is approachable. He is near to us, but he is not to be treated lightly, nor treated flippantly. So, when we speak of the transcendence of God, we speak of His glory. We speak of His glory in His separateness. We also speak of His glory in His power. God is infinitely powerful. He is this. He is the. Uh, he is supreme. He is. Uh, Omnipotent, that means all-powerful. He is God Almighty. And that's good news because when we speak of God in this way in His transcendence, you see, we're not Almighty. We have very limited... We're frail people when we really look in the mirror. How good it is to know we, we pray to the God who is in heaven, the One who is Almighty and who is omnipotent. For He is the One who can truly answer Whatever our need. Not only is God in heaven speak to His glory, but God in heaven speaks to His perfection. His perfection as Father. He is different from fallible earthly fathers. Some of you had a dad that might have been a deadbeat dad. Some of you might have had an absentee dad or some other poor example of a father. But understand that God is different. God is the perfect Father. No matter how good your father was, and I know some of you had great dads, my children especially. uh, (laughs) No matter how good your dad was, he failed. There are many times that he was not loving dad He should have been, that He was not the patient dad He should have been. He was flawed. But God as Father is always faithful. He is always loving. He is always good. Don't allow, if you had a bad example of a father, don't allow a flawed image of a human father to mar or to tarnish the image of the perfect Father, the beauty of the reality of our Father in Heaven who is the perfection of all the best things that come to mind when we think of Dad, when we think of Father. The address of our prayer is to our Father in Heaven. Lastly, we come to the first request of the prayer. There are in this prayer, there are six requests. Three of them, the first three focus on God. The second three of these requests focus on us. Three, Six petitions in the prayer. The first of these, you know, before I get to there, I should say we all tend, or I shouldn't say all of us, most of us tend to make a big mistake in prayer. And that is we call out to God or Father and then the very next word is we start in with our with our list of requests. Our little, you know, roll out the list of here's all the things that we want. <laughs> and we move from God in one word to us. And everything else is about us. And that's not the way that Jesus... In this pattern, this model prayer, that's not the way he calls for us to pray. He addresses God as Father in Heaven and then the first three requests aren't about us at all. They're all about Him. All about God. And you see, that really is significant. We actually end up cheating ourselves when we go to ourselves first. You see, God calls us to focus first on God. And when we take time to gaze upon Him, to ponder for a while His greatness, to remember His goodness, to contemplate His unending patience, to remember His untiring love, To enjoy for a moment the truth that He is eager to give as a loving father. See, when we start there, then we discover that we are reassured in our faith, that we are bolstered in our hope, we are grown and in our confidence, we find courage in His strength. What we discover is, you see, that before we ever get to our needs and our concerns, we discover that they are already met in Him. But when we go right to our laundry list of concerns and problems, we end up finding ourselves frustrated because we haven't really spent time with God. We haven't really focused on who He is. And no wonder we find ourselves unable to leave our burdens with Him. As the Scripture says, cast your burdens upon Him. Be anxious for nothing but of everything by prayer and supplication. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, it goes on to say, will guard your hearts and minds. But when we start with ourselves, we won't find that true. Jesus calls us to prayer, and we begin in prayer by focusing on Him. Notice the first request is, Hallowed be your name. A word that I don't think probably showed up anywhere in your speech all week long. Hallowed. Did anybody use that word this week, unless you were praying the Lord's Prayer? Probably not. What in the world does Hallowed be your name mean anyway? The word hallowed means to be revered, to be honored. It is holy to be set apart. It's, you'll notice it's a request, not a declaration. It's not your name is hallowed, it's hallowed be your name. It's a request. May your name be honored. May your name be revered. May your name be be holy. It's a request. I, I like this translation, the New English translation. May your name be honored. It's exactly what this phrase means. May your name be honored. Three practical applications or implications from this as I, as I wrap this up. What would it mean, what does it mean when we pray to God May your name be honored. Hallowed be your name. Three implications that I came up with or thought of this week. The first is this. If I pray this prayer, then what I'm asking is, God, may your name not be profaned. May we not profane your name. May we instead set God's name apart from everything that is profane, everything that is vile, everything that is wicked, everything that is empty, everything that is meaningless. May your name be holy. May we not use God's name irreverently, flippantly, emptily. Of course, probably what's already come to mind is that sounds an awful lot like the third commandment of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, emptily. May I say we live in a culture that does that incessantly. And it ought not be so among God's people. We should not take God's name profanely. We should not use it you know, in profanity, in cursing. But it's more than that. Probably the thing that I see that's equally offensive to God that is is commonplace in, in culture and in language today, even among many believers, is we just are constantly, oh God this, oh God that. We use His name flippantly. It ought not be so. When we pray, hallowed be Your name, may Your name be honored, then we ought to ourselves, our speech ought to be different. We honor God, His name, in our words. Secondly, may you be worshiped. May your name be worshiped. When the Bible speaks uh, of lifting up, of honoring or worshiping the name of God. It's more than just the name of God. It is speaking of all He is. All He is in His character. All He is in His nature. When we honor His name, we honor Him because of who He is. The name speaks to the wholeness of the person. So, I was thinking about this week, I realized that the most important part of our time when we gather together is the church The most important part of our time is worship. It is our worshiping that is the most important, not even the preaching. You say, well, pastor, then why in the world do we ever spend so much time with you up there flapping your gums? That's a great question. The answer to that is because learning from God's Word is essential to our worship. Psalm 92 says this. It calls us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Two things you notice in there. We are to give God the glory that is due His name. Well, how much glory is due Him? That's one thing we need to know. The other thing it says, worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The splendor... To the degree, everything that that describes how awesome He is. Well, how do we know how awesome He is? How do we know how much glory is due His name? We have to know about God. That's why God's Word is essential to this. Imagine going to a retirement dinner. A retirement dinner for your dear friend. He invited you along as his special guest, and you're there. The company's footing the bill. It's a nice dinner, and the the guys is presenting the president of the company. Your chairman gets up, and he he says, "You know, we're here tonight to honor a great man that we all know and love as he retires." Here we have before us John Fink. Excuse me, John Finkelstein. A man who dedicated himself to this company for twenty five years what? Excuse me, thirty-seven years. A guy who served honorably and wonderfully as a regional manager, excuse me, as vice president of you know how much honor is that? It's so phony and so fake. The guy who's talking obviously knows nothing about your friend, John. May I say that Christians often honor God in that same dishonoring way? By saying things about God that aren't true. By ignoring or being ignorant of things about God that we should know. That is why the Word of God is essential in worship. That's why in the history of the church, the Word of God has been central to worship. We study the Word of God together because it is in studying the Word of God that it informs us and teaches us so that we can worship Him. And worship is more than just being together and singing a few songs. Worship is that, but it is also how we go out from this place and live all week long. We spend time in the Word of God so that we can worship well, so that we can give to the Lord the glory that is due His name, as the one who has made all things, who owns all things, as a God who is immortal who is all-wise, who is all-knowing, as the God who is, and we can go on and on. That's the purpose of our study in the Word. Thirdly, if we pray that God's name would be honored, it's not just that we don't profane His name. It's not not just that we worship Him. But it implies when we say, "May may your name be honored, it implies that we will obey Him. That we will live a life that is worthy of our Father. And make no mistake, when we call God our Father, we wear His name. In the very same way that as children of human fathers, we bear their name. We wear their name. Some of us had dads who would say, you know, when you go out for the day, you know, make good on the name. Honor the name. Bring honor to the family today. It's a fair thing for human fathers, human parents to expect of their children. Make me proud. So it is for our Heavenly Father. Our life is a reflection upon our human parents. Our life is to a much greater extent a reflection on our Heavenly Father if we claim the name. If we pray, hallowed be Your name, it implies that we're desiring and aiming to live up to His name. Ray Steadman, in a book he wrote, he's long gone home to be with the Lord, a dear pastor, but in a book he wrote called The Pattern Prayer, he says, this is the petition that makes hypocrites out of most of us. He goes on to explain, he says, when we pray like this, if we pray in any degree whatsoever of sincerity or of openness or of honesty, then what we're praying is, Lord, I open to you every closet. He's talking about those internal closets inside, in our soul. I am taking every skeleton out for you to examine. Hallowed be thy name. That's really what this is, to pray this prayer. It's to say, "To say, hallowed be your name, is saying, Lord, I'm yours. I want your name to be hallowed, to be exalted, to be revered, to be honored in the, up in heaven and here on earth and in me. And what that means is that every, every drawer, every closet, every corner of my life is yours. So David prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That's what it means to say, hallowed be Your name. But I don't want it to leave us thinking that the answer here is that we recognize our shortcomings and failures and then simply that we just need to go home and try harder to be like Jesus. Would you notice how Jesus frames this prayer request? He doesn't... Say, guys, pray this. Lord, I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. Help me to try harder and be better. Doesn't say that. The focus, remember, it's not on us, it's all on Him right now. And He just says, May your name be. Revered and honored. and The implication is even in me. The reality is I am a loser and I am a failure and I am a sinner and I have messed up. And implied in all of that is I can't do this. So God, I want Your name to be honored. And I want it to be honored in me. But quite frankly, you got to do it. All of that because the focus is on Him. When the Father's honor is really the desire of our heart, when that's our focus, it's not about that I'm a failure. When my focus is, I want Your honor. When my prayer of my heart is, God, I want Your honor, I believe He answers that prayer and He changes us. We've gotten the focus off us and on Him. Martin Luther put it this way. I thought it was so profound. He said, You do not command a stone which is lying in the sun to be warm. It will be warm all by itself. See, the focus isn't on us. I turned the focus to Him. God, I, You're my Father. I love that. I don't understand that, but I'm so, so in love with You that You love me hallowed be Your name. And He starts to warm us and change us. Father, we need this. We confess. We we have the focus on ourselves most of the time. So change us as as we learn to pray like Jesus taught. Then we turn the focus to You. And we start to realize who You are. You are our Father in Heaven. And may the great desire, the great burning of our heart as we respond to the One who has loved us so and brought us into Your family, made us Your children, may the burning desire of our heart be that You are honored. This week, even may those truths begin to revolutionize how we pray. And may we see you begin to do mighty things in our lives. For your glory, for your honor, we ask.